Well, Easter is one week away from today, and that's a big deal in my house. I've got uh, children who are seven, five, and three, and so we've been pretty focused on Easter as the next kind of milestone on the calendar since Christmas, but it's not like, it's pretty candy-driven. In fact, Hudson the other day was like, mom and dad like talking to us really early in the morning. He was like, we need to do an Easter egg hunt at our house but then maybe we could go to grandma and grandpa's house and have an Easter egg hunt there, but then maybe we could go to the other grandma and grandpa's house and have an Easter egg there. And then Rachel just like really kindly explained to Hudson, like Hudson, like we need to be careful that we don't have too much candy. And he just looked at her like so serious and he's like, but mom, that's what Easter is all about. And I'm just thinking as a pastor, that maybe I've got some work to do at the home. That's not what Easter is actually all about. I mean, it's part of it. I know for a lot of people in Vancouver, Easter is like a symbol of a transition into spring. Um, it's a day off. It's a chance to eat some candy. And all of those things are good things. But for followers of Jesus, these days leading up to and including Good Friday and Easter I mean, these represent a series of events that unfolded 2,000 years ago, which are themselves the most significant days in all of human history. And this week, this week starting today on Palm Sunday and leading up to Easter is often called Holy Week. On Good Friday, we remember the death of Jesus on the cross. And on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And today one week before Easter, is traditionally called Palm Sunday. So here's what we're gonna to do. Today and next week, we're gonna break from our series on Ephesians just to enter into Holy Week and to reflect on what's happening. And all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the event that we looked at today in the text in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 41. And this event recorded in all four Gospels happened a week before the very first Easter. And if you want to open to the text right now, whether you have it in a browser or the Bible in front of you, help to follow along. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 41. And the scene is amazing. And it is a packed passage of scripture. It's full of allusions and references and packed with meaning. But at its core, like the very core idea happening in this text is Jesus' claim to be king. This text is about Jesus' claim to be king. And beyond that, it's a text that describes the kind of king that Jesus is. And so here's how we're going to move through the text today. We're going to look at it through the lens of the kind of king that Jesus is. And we're going to look at it in four, port, four parts. Four ports could also be good, but we're going to look at it in four parts. First, Jesus is the true king. That is to say, he's the king of kings. Second, he's the unexpected king. That is to say, he's not the kind of king that the people of his day expected him to be. Third, he's the weeping king. Fourth, the worthy king. This text presents Jesus as the true king, the unexpected king, the weeping king, and the worthy king. So first, Jesus is the true king. Let me do my best to summarize what's happening in the scene in Luke chapter 19. So Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he's on a journey towards the royal city of Jerusalem a very familiar path. And they're actually about three kilometers away from the city and uh, just approaching the top of the Mount of Olives. And as they approach, uh, he says to, and oh, one thing that's helpful to keep in mind is that Jesus is very aware that he is only a few days away 
from being put on trial and then being crucified at the hands of the Roman. So this is the context for Jesus. Like this whole thing is happening. Jesus is deeply aware of what's happening ahead. So they're three kilometers out from Jerusalem, walking towards the city. And as they're on the Mount of Olives, he says to two of his disciples, he says, go to Bethpage. And Bethpage would be like a suburb very close to Jerusalem. He says, go to Bethpage and there you're going to find a colt. Untie the colt and bring it to me. And so they do as he says. They go, he, they go, he, they go and they grab the colt, they bring it to Jesus. And then they lay kind of a cloak on the donkey and Jesus gets on it. And as Jesus begins to move forward, the disciples lay down their cloaks in front of Jesus on the colt. And then crowds began to gather and they do the same. They lay their cloaks on the ground and then they all begin to shout and cheer and sing. They begin to quote famous songs that they would know, psalms about the king and the coming king. They, they quote Psalm 118, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The other gospels accounts have them crying out, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, save now. They grab palm branches, they begin to wave them. Palm branches being symbols of victory and celebration. So picture this scene, cloaks on the ground, Jesus riding on a colt, singing, blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a kingly entrance. It's a spectacular scene. And at a quick glance, it could seem like everything happening was spontaneous. Like it just sort of unfolded on accident. But that's not what's happening here. This whole event is very thoughtfully orchestrated. Jesus had a plan. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he sent his disciples to grab the colt. When he entered, went on the colt to enter into the city. Jesus was making a bold statement. And he was saying this. I am the promised king who will deliver God's people. This is an orchestrated event that he knows will trigger a series of events that will lead to his crucifixion and death. And it's an orchestrated event that declares himself as king. So here's what we need to know. The promise of like a messianic king would have been front of mind for Jewish people in the first century. They were a people under oppression of the Roman government. And they would have so longed for the day where their true king would come and rescue them. All through their scriptures that they read off often, there was promises of a messianic king that would come and deliver them and rescue them and redeem them and bring them into their promised future. And so many of the details in the text that Luke gives us in chapter 19, like kind of ooze with this messianic and kingly imagery. There's lots of examples. Let me just give you one. Uh, so the people are laying down the cloaks, right? If you go to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, in this text, Jehu, who's a king of Israel hundreds of years before, is anointed and appointed as king of Israel. And here's what the text says in verse 13. It says, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew trumpets and shouted, Jehu is king. So you begin to see how this imagery is beginning to unfold, that this is a kingly scene. That might not be symbolic for us to lay a cloak. Like we get the idea of honor, but for them, this is symbol and pointing to like the appointing of a king like Jehu. And there are at least four other distinct references to texts like this, references to scriptures of a promised king that would come and deliver the people. Just in this text, it references back to one of many Old Testament scriptures about this promised king. 
but probably the most significant one being interacted with, one that Jesus would have in mind and the people around Jesus would have in mind is Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 is a prophecy about a promised king that would come and rescue the people of Israel and bring about their peace and prosperity. And before we read it, just think for a second about what Jesus asked his disciples to do. He says, go and grab a colt. Like, just picture that specific request as we read this text. Verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Do you see what's going on? Jesus set the whole thing up with Zechariah chapter 9 in mind. He says, go get me a colt. Today I'm coming to Jerusalem to declare I am their long-awaited king. And listen to some of the promises that follow in the verses in chapter 9 of Zechariah. This is what it says about this king. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. He will free prisoners from the waterless pit. He will restore twice as much to you that was stolen. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. So Jesus is saying, I am the king of Zechariah's prophecy. I am here righteous and victorious. I'm here to proclaim peace to the nations. I'm here to free your prisoners and restore what has been stolen. I'm here to bring God's great salvation. I'm here to bring peace to the city of Jerusalem and beyond. What a bold claim Jesus is making. What an audacious claim. I am the true king that can bring peace to this city and from sea to sea. And let me just make a quick side note. Oftentimes, uh, I have conversations with people who celebrate Jesus and his teaching and his kindness and his compassion his lifestyle, but reject him as like God and Lord. And I love those parts of Jesus, but I just think that what I think is interesting when you encounter the real Jesus, like when you go to the text and you read the story of the real Jesus, it both compels you, but it also confronts you. Because what you meet is someone, yes, full of love and compassion, great teaching and full of mercy, but also someone who is constantly claiming to be king, to have divine authority, constantly putting himself in the place of God. And for Jesus to make these bold claims so consistently, it confronts us. I think it demands us to wrestle with these claims. Who is the one who claims to be king? And so upon seeing Jesus, cloaks on the ground, riding on a colt, crowds begin to gather. And then imagine the hope they feel. This is our moment. The king is coming. Surely he's coming to rescue Jerusalem. So they worship and they praise. But that same crowd, just a few days later, would reject Jesus. And their cries would move from, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him crucify him. Why? Why do the crowds change their tone? Because he was not the king they expected. They had an expectation in mind for the kind of way the king would come, and Jesus did not meet 
their expectations. So second thought, Jesus the unexpected king. So when military kings would approach, they would mount a horse. Like that would be a symbol that I am coming to bring war. But if a king was to come on a colt like this, it would be a symbol of peace. And so here we have Jesus entering the city, not on a horse, like to get military victory, but coming on a donkey. You see, the people, they wanted a bold, proud military king who would bring victory through might. But instead, Jesus comes as the humble king to bring peace through sacrifice. I want to just invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 16. And it's a series of dialogues, two different dialogues between Peter and Jesus. Peter being Jesus, one of Jesus' most close disciples. And the reason why I want to go to this text is I want you to get a window in to just how deeply ingrained the certain expectations were around the messianic king coming. And so track with me. Let's start at verse 13. It says this. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Which is Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So let's just pause there for a second. So Peter has this revelation of who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah. He's the foretold rescuer that's going to come and deliver the people of Israel. And Jesus says, you're blessed. You've got it. You're right on. You're seeing clearly. But then just a few verses later, Jesus, it says this in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And this is something you see in all the gospels as well. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his followers, What's going to happen? That's why we know that Jesus, as he approached the city of Jerusalem, knew what was ahead for him. He told the disciples, I'm going to go to the city. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. And I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to raise to life again. Jesus knew that the victory of God would be achieved through laying down his life. But look at verse 22. It says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Why is Peter rebuking Jesus? Because he, this doesn't add up. The messianic king cannot be murdered and beaten. Like for Peter in his imagination, the king comes to take others down. The king comes to rescue him with mighty victory. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming. And the way I'm going to get victory is by laying down my life. And Peter can't imagine it to the point where he audaciously goes to Jesus, the one he just said is the Messiah. And he says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't do that. Never, Lord. I won't let this happen. And verse 23 says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that's what's going on. Jesus comes 
to bring about salvation in a way that no one could imagine. He's the unexpected king. And even just like, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is betrayed, Peter again, after this conversation, he draws his sword. And when the guards come to take Jesus, he draws a sword and he swings it. He ends up cutting off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. You don't get it. And he puts his hand on the ear of the man and heals him and says, this is the Father's will. I think about how the scriptures say that like the Son of Man, his life isn't taken from him. He gives his life. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so people didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. They expected a king who would take the lives of their enemies. But Jesus is the unexpected king who lays down his life for his enemies. They expected a king to come and cast judgment on their oppressors. But Jesus is the unexpected king who also comes to bear the judgment of all of humanity. They expected a king who would come and fight the Romans, but Jesus had a greater salvation in mind. You see, if Jesus came as the military king they wanted, and if he was victorious and he led a rebellion against Rome, that would have only brought about limited freedom for a few people for a limited period of time, maybe one generation, maybe not even. But God was doing something so much greater, so much greater than these people could even imagine. Jesus wasn't coming just to kill a few oppressors. He was coming to kill the ultimate oppressor, that is evil, death, and sin. And he wasn't coming just to bring salvation for a few people for a limited amount of time. He was coming to bring about salvation for all of mankind, for all of eternity. And he would accomplish this great salvation not through military might, but through great sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is the only person to ever live without sin. He's the only person who didn't deserve to pay the judgment of sin. But in his love and kindness, he died in the place of sinners so that all of us who deserve death may have the everlasting life only he truly deserves. Jesus' plan was to die in our place. And there's a story from World War II that comes to mind that helps illustrate this. Um, in July of 1941, at Auschwitz concentration camp, a prisoner escaped. And so what the guards did um, is they picked 10 people at random uh, to go into a starvation bunker to die. And one of the guys that they picked was a guy named Francis Gavnicek. And as he was being taken to the starvation bunker, he began to cry out, my wife, my children, I'll never see them again. And so at that moment, a guy named Maximilian Kolbe spoke up and says, take me instead. Take me instead. And for some reasons, the guard obliged. And they took Maximilian Kolbe in the place of Francis Gavnicek. 
And uh, along with the other nine people, Maximilian Kolbe would die by lethal injection just a few weeks later. And then 41 years later, in 1982, in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Pope John Paul II was speaking to a crowd of 150,000 people, and he shared the story of Maximilian Kolbe, and this is what he said. It was a victory like that one by our Lord Jesus Christ. Maximilian Kolbe gave his life so that someone else could live. Jesus of Nazareth, the true and unexpected king, gave his life on behalf of all of humanity so that whoever puts their faith in him can live forever. He's the true king. He's the unexpected king who lays down his life. And Luke tells us that he's the weeping king. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And the word that Luke uses for weeping here, it's not like a subtle, soft thing. It's like a heaving of the chest. It's a deep wail. It's like soul agony. Jesus isn't just shedding a tear over Jerusalem. He's like, and picture the context. People are cheering. He's being celebrated. And then he sees the city, like the city comes into focus as he crests the top of the Mount of Olives. And he sees the city and he begins to heave deep sorrow, tears. Why? It's possible to think that, oh, maybe he's crying because he knows what's ahead. He knows that he's going to die at the hands of the Romans and be rejected by his people. But that is not why he's weeping. The answer to the question, why is Jesus weeping, is layered. But he weeps because he knows the fate of Jerusalem. He knows that the city, which was meant to be a city of peace and a light to all the nations of the world, will soon find themselves in ruin. Jesus is God's great appeal to Jerusalem. Jesus is God's great appeal to all of mankind. But in this moment, Jesus is God's great appeal to the people of Jerusalem. But he wasn't God's first appeal. He sent many appeals before them. All through the scriptures, you can read prophet after prophet sent messengers to the people of Jerusalem to repent, to turn from the ways of this world, to step into their special calling as the people of God, to align with him. But they reject the prophets over the centuries. And through Jesus' life, they rejected Jesus. And ultimately, in this last moment, they're going to reject Jesus for the last time. And to reject Jesus is to reject God's salvation. Jesus is the only way to peace for the city of Jerusalem. They want to try the ways of this world and the ways of Caesar. But the only way to peace for Jerusalem or for any city of this world is through Jesus. And in their rejecting of Jesus, they are willfully choosing to stay on a path of disintegration that ultimately leads to destruction. History actually records the leveling of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans several decades later in 70 AD. Their city and their temple were destroyed, just rubble remains. But cities can be rebuilt physically. 
But there's only one way for the city to find real peace, like real shalom, and that's through Jesus. And so in rejecting Jesus, they chose to stand in the path of judgment and destruction instead of the path, path of mercy and peace. And this breaks the heart of Jesus. And this breaks the heart of God. Matthew records in chapter 23, Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's why Jesus weeps. He weeps because he loves them and he longs to protect them, but they were not willing. And um, I'm really impacted by this vision of Jesus, this image of God. It both compels me and it confronts me. Like it doesn't leave me just casual. And that's always what happens when you see the real Jesus because it, it, it confronts your sensibilities. And so sometimes when I think about God and I know God being all-powerful, all-knowing, full of truth and justice, you know, sometimes my imagination struggles to imagine that God is anything but kind of like just a cosmic robot in the sky with no love or affection towards the people. Everything is just as it goes. I, I just struggle to, to imagine this God, but here we're confronted with a God who is perfect, who is all-knowing, who is just, who is true, who does hold evil to account, but whose heart also breaks, who sobs with deep wailing when he sees the people he loves on a path towards destruction. In this moment, we see God revealed in Jesus as a God of great love and mercy, not just towards the people of Jerusalem, but towards all of humanity, towards you, towards me, towards our city and all the nations of the world. And I think about the weeping king. Um, I can't help but, you know, I picture him looking at the city that he loved with tears in his eyes, and I can't help but think of what this means for followers of Jesus and the way we're to look at the city. I don't know how well you can see the city behind me right now, um, but every day I look out on the city of Vancouver. Every day I, I try to walk along the seawall or somewhere nearby or even just from this view and pray for the city. And this is what I pray for the city. I pray that God would move in this city in our time. I pray that the children in this city would be protected. I pray that single moms in this city would be strengthened and comforted. I pray that people trapped in addiction would be liberated. I pray that those without food or shelter would be fed and warmed. I pray that corrupt businesses would fail. I pray that good and honest and godly leaders would rise up in every sector of the city. I pray that the message of Jesus would be shared boldly and people would be find, find hope. I pray that the church would grow not just in size, but in impact and in their calling and identity in him. I pray that the church would be the hands and feet of Jesus. I pray that great art and beauty would flow from the city and I pray that God would bless the city and it would prosper the city and that the city would have peace. And ultimately I pray that the gates of the city of Vancouver would not be closed to the king of peace 
like the gates of Jerusalem were. And when I look at the city, I see God's hand all over the city of Vancouver. I see his kingdom breaking in. I see people working for justice. I see young men and women dedicating their lives to the cause of others. I see the gospel being proclaimed in word and deed. I see families being restored. I see churches growing. I see new businesses and organizations emerging with the ethics and generosity and kindness of the kingdom of God. And I see big and small acts of love and mercy and justice. I can see God's kingdom at work all over the city. But when I look at the city and when you look at the city, you can't miss that it's full of brokenness and sin. You see that the ways of Jesus have been rejected by the city, and as a result, there's so much brokenness and there's so much decay. And so when we look at a city that actively rejects God, how are we to look at it? I believe we're to look at it through the eyes of Jesus, with tears of compassion. I heard it said, to reach a city, you must weep for the city. And so I'm asking God to touch my eyes and my heart. I'm asking God to touch your eyes and your heart with his great love so that when you look upon the city in its beauty and brokenness, we would not be callous or condescending, but full of compassion and love and longing. And I think if God could give us his heart for the city, we would become like Jesus. And that is to say that we'd become willing to lay down our lives for the sake of those who even reject God. He's the true king. He's the unexpected king. He's the weeping king. And lastly, he's the worthy king. This text we've been looking at is about worship. You can't miss it. The whole scene is a worship service. And I grew up in a small church in Coquitlam and on Palm Sunday, this Sunday every year, at the door they'd hand out palm branches and they would sing this song, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. People would lift palm branches and it was so fun and I loved it. And I tried to logistically figure out if I could send all of you palm branches, but there was just like, with like mail and postage, it just became less and less viable. But if you do have a palm branch handy, go grab it right now. Or if you want to use something else as a metaphor called palm branch, now is the time to grab it. Um, and on the first Palm Sunday, that's what they did. They cried out, waving branches of victory and celebration before the king who was riding on a colt towards the city. And they sang, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid down their cloaks. And this picture of laying down their cloaks is like, it's not just song, but it's also sacrifice, this valuable thing. It's also honor. And this is a profound picture of worship, singing and honor and sacrifice before the king. It's a worship service. But what's interesting is that the same people who sang songs of worship would later reject Jesus. Why? We talked about this. They rejected Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. When they realized that he was not the kind of king they wanted him to be, ultimately when they couldn't see the big picture, like they had a vision for how salvation should come and how God should work, and when Jesus didn't fit that vision or that expectation, their worship turned to criticism. 
And I think it's just worth meditating on that for a moment. Like, what does it look like? And I'm, I'm speaking specifically to people who would call themselves followers of Jesus. What does it look like to worship even when God doesn't meet our expectations? What does it look like to resolve to worship no matter what the circumstances? And as a pastor, and I care deeply for you, I know that in every home watching, there are deeply unmet expectations. There's sadness and there's loss and there's grief. And as a community, we long to comfort you. And my prayer is that the Prince of Peace would enter your house and hearts even now and bring you peace in the midst of it all. And my prayer is that there would be a revelation that happens in your heart that gives you the courage to worship the true king regardless of the circumstances. It's a kind of worship that's anchored in the hope that what Jesus did through his life and his death and his resurrection has truly defeated death and sin and the devil. And indeed, like it's the revelation that in his life, death, and resurrection, he has secured a hopeful future and that he will indeed wipe away every tear and that the good, unexpected king is making all things new. He is the worthy king who willingly lays down his life for you and for me. And I'm praying that we'd have a revelation of that king that moves us to worship. I've got this image in my mind when I think about worshiping through pain that I can't shake. Um, it was years ago when I was a youth pastor in Langley, and I was in my early 20s, and there was a girl in our youth ministry who was 16, and she was diagnosed with cancer, and it was life-threatening. And um, so for about six months, I, as I recall, she was in and out of the hospital, and because of chemotherapy, uh, you know, she was sick, she lost her hair, and uh, for most weeks, we didn't see her at our weekly youth night. Our weekly youth night was at the church. There's tons of kids and there's worship and games and singing and, uh, and teaching in small groups. And, but one night, I saw her enter in the back and I could see that her frame was smaller from the sickness of chemotherapy. And I could see under her toque that all of her hair was gone. And I mean, you know, like I know, all the insecurities that plague us as teenagers. And so just as brave to even see her show up at a youth group night in front of all of her peers. But as the band was singing and I saw her in the back, her arms were stretched. And there was joy in her face. And she was so boldly worshiping God. And that picture has just stained my imagination of the kind of worship that comes from the revelation of the goodness of God right in the face of the pain and brokenness of this world. The kind of worship to the worthy king. It's a fitting praise to the true king. He is the worthy king. And so this morning, I want to invite you to worship as response to this king. And um, I know, let me say this, I cannot wait till we can gather together and sing in a room. And I know that the environment of our home or wherever you're watching and whatever screen you're watching on, like, it's not the same. But I think there's an opportunity in this moment 
to find a posture, whether on your knees or if you want to open your hands or stand and lift your voice, and to worship the true and worthy King. As we sing, I want to invite you to lift your voice. I know it's been a long time since maybe you've lifted your voice, but I want to invite you wherever you are, in the midst of the awkwardness, in the midst of whatever the circumstances, not to ignore those things, but in light of those things with our eyes fixed as we're entering into Holy Week, with approach Good Friday and Easter, I think it's fitting for us to fix our eyes on the worthy King who laid down his life for you and for me and for us to give an offering of praise in this moment. So let's stand or kneel, open our hands and sing and worship the King of Kings together.